Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the increasing prospect of France going its own way, an update on the New Eastern question in Eastern Europe, and some speculation on the future of the Korean Peninsula. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, there was a shooting at a funeral at a Lebanese-Palestinian camp, Burj al-Shamali, that's its name. Four Palestinians were killed. Hamas blames Fatah for the killings, and Fatah obviously denies and says that it was someone else. So there's tensions in Lebanon and Palestinian. There's tensions there because... uh. The situation with the Palestinian people is pretty bad and gets worse by the day, especially as Israel continues its expansion into Palestinian lands, forcing them off and then settling their own people there. So, you have these instances where lots of Palestinians are pushed off and they end up in other people's countries in these camps. And now there's violence there as well. And this followed, if I'm not mistaken, an explosion that happened before. That's sort of why there was a funeral to begin with. There was an explosion and people were killed. So, lots of uh, high tensions running in this area. And so far, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. There's uh, major uh, unrest in Israel between Israel and Palestine. There's literal fighting. And then up north where Lebanon is, there's a Great Depression going on. So not exactly the best of times, but that's them. Meanwhile, over the last week, news outlets around the world have been beating the war drums on a perceived potential of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, we talked about this. uh, Ironically, we talked about it the week before when we were discussing Belarus and upping the ante and upping of the stakes that was going on between Belarus and Lithuania. Uh, we, when we were talking about that, we talked about the prospect of a great, a wider war in the region. And then there was all the hype being built up over the potential of a war. And then we covered it again in last episode. And my analysis remains the same. I believe that it would go horribly wrong for everyone who isn't Russia. Uh, just due to geography and where the fighting is taking place. And that's very, very, very important, especially concerning logistics and where your troops are, uh, which, for some reason, I don't feel enough attention is being paid to that specific reality of any potential conflict there. The where, um, because people talk about defending Ukraine. Ukraine is right next to Russia. Russia can walk in. You can't. You're not there. And that's before you get into Ukraine not being an ally, although lots of people keep trying to pretend that they are, um, but they quite literally are not. But we've I've discussed that in previous episodes. I was ahead of the curb accidentally, and then I'm uh, looking at the details that are ignored in the second time so if you want more on that you you can either go to the last two episodes or we can wait for something bigger to happen and i'll cover it again but that's ukraine Uh, lots of news about potential war in ukraine Uh, lots of them don't recognize the internal nature of the conflict in ukraine Uh, they think it's ukraine versus russia instead of ukraine versus ukraine but previous episode we'll move on tornadoes in america have ripped through multiple states hitting kentucky particularly hard and in total, leaving over 100 dead that we know of so far. And I wish everyone the best, and I hope you all stay safe. Uh, especially as we're probably going to see a hurricane or two as well at some point during this uh, rough season. 
uh, speaking of America, we're also set to send Dr. Karen Donfried, the Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, specifically to discuss Ukrainian-Russian relations. Again, that's uh, sort of an example of what I just brought up, how a lot of the people talking about this conflict ignore the internal nature of the war. Russia is an outside player backing rebels in Ukraine. It's not a Ukraine versus Russia, it's a Ukraine versus Ukrainian, the separatists in the Donbass region. But she's there to talk about Ukrainian-Russian relations when it's really when the talks that really need to be held are between Ukraine and the rebels. That's how you're going to get to the heart of the conflict. If you can get them to talk, then you can get Russia to back off. And that's ironically what Russia's been asking for, some sort of direct talks between Ukraine and the rebels. So, key example here of the point being missed by lots of leaders on our side of this uh, debacle. Meanwhile, Biden and Putin have continued to have talks with each other, direct talks with each other, uh, specifically over the Donbass war in Ukraine. And Biden has so far hinted that the United States would not get involved in a war there. We'll see. I say we'll see because just off my personal experience, there's lots of people who, in politics, who talk about being anti-war, but then those are the same people advocating we have to defend democracy over here and over there and over there. So I say we'll see because that's the only way we'll be able to know for certain. We'll just have to wait and see. So there's that. Uh, Tigray in Ethiopia has taken control of the city of Lelebela. So they're still on the advance and they're still winning so far. We'll see if the federal government can make a comeback of sorts, but I think they're fighting a multiple front war now as other factions in Ethiopia have risen up against them now. So that's a problem. Uh, La Palma, a volcano, has exploded, well, erupted on a Spanish-controlled Canary Island. The Canaries are a, a chain of islands off the coast of West Africa. If you find on a map where Morocco and West Sahara meet, you go straight west from that border, former border, uh, and you'll find you'll go straight to the islands. They're right there. So then there's New Caledonia, some other islands in the Pacific, and they are under French control, but they have taken a vote on whether or not they will remain a part of France. So interesting news there. Uh, Lithuania, uh, not a Lithuania, lithium mine protests in Serbia. Uh, have blocked the roads in thir the third day of protests and unrest, and France is currently set to open up their Algerian war archives, so their archives on the Algerian War for Independence. And that wraps up the rapid-fire news. Now we can get into the juicy, juicy meat I have today. So, let's start this off with... The, should I start off with France or the Eastern question? I will start off with the Eastern question, uh, as it is sort of the shortest of the three segments I have today, and we'll get into it. So, Eastern question update. The Biden administration, in light of the talks that Biden has been having with Putin, they have returned to the anti-Nord Stream 2 policy and now want the pipeline canceled. I... That's that's not gonna happen. Oh, that's that's just not gonna happen. The, the pipeline's done. They're running tests on it as we speak to make sure that it's gonna function properly. There's no canceling this. Um, it's a very bizarre move. It's a very bizarre move. I can't make out why the administration would do it. Um, but the first thought that runs through my mind is the question, have they run out of ideas? And I say that because it seems like the only option they want to pursue, the only options they want to pursue, are the same ones that haven't worked. The 
only stances that they want to take are the same ones that have already failed. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, talking about economic sanctions, financial sanctions, cutting Russia off from international banking systems, sanctions on specific individuals within Russia and within Belarus, and of course, sanctions on Nord Stream 2. None of these policies work. None of them have worked. And they didn't even cause the Russian economy to shrink. They've, the Russian economy has grown. And Russia has a budget surplus. I. And then you have, let's not even talk about Nord Stream 1. That's already there. No one talks about that one. Um, let's not talk about Russian pipelines going to China either. Like, I do not understand what's attempted to be achieved here. Um, because it's not substantive, if that's the right word for it. I'm really stumped, if you can't tell. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out, but I just can't see it. Why would you go back to trying to get Nord Stream 2 cancelled when Nord Stream 2 is finished? Why would you... Why would you try to get Russia to talk to Ukraine when the war in Ukraine is between Ukraine and the rebels? Russia's back in the rebels. The same thing that we're doing with the Syrian rebels in Syria. That'd be like asking... Um, that'd be like Russia asking America have direct talks with the Assad government over the war in Syria when we are not the ones who are in the war although we can say complete, we can say otherwise because we have troops there in an overt manner and the Russians do have some troops in Donbass as well but the front line is the rebels against the government so I don't, I feel like they've missed the mark. They've missed the mark. And because of that, and they've based their assumptions off of um, an incorrect perception, their policies in addressing the issues that they face are not suited for the situation. That's sort of the best way I can piece together what I'm observing here. It seems because we'll, we'll just take their stance on Russia. Say They view Russia as amassing 170,000 troops on the border with Ukraine. And they're afraid that there's going to be an invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And that assumption, that assumption that they base their judgments off of, because it is wrong, because Russian troops are not on the border, they're they're able to get there if they wanted to, but they're not on the border. So right off the bat, that assumption that these judgments are being based off of is wrong. So then the judgments that are made are not going to be, ref they're not going to be adequate to deal with the actual situation that's going down. So I think, I think that's the problem. I think I've identified the problem. The assumptions are wrong, and so the judgments and the policies that are based off of these assumptions are not suited for the situation, which is why it seems so bizarre. They're assuming that they can cancel Nord Stream 2. The reality is Nord Stream 2 is finished and is going through the testing phases to make sure that everything is going to run the right way and there won't be mishaps and leakages when the pipeline is fully operational. But the assumption that this is a pipeline that is unfinished or that it can be cancelled is wrong. Therefore, any judgment or policy made off of that is also going to be wrong. And I think that's the problem. Wrong or false assumptions that are created when you don't gather the full context of the situation. They're missing context, and that's sort of the biggest detriment I see to the administration right now. They aren't getting the full context, and they're missing key parts of it. 
as a result. And because they don't have the key parts of the context, they're making judgments that don't suit the situation. And that's throwing them off and throwing me off trying to observe what they're doing. And they get into situations that are unnecessary. Like, how are they going to stop Nord Stream 2? Like, the unnecessary situation that's going to result from that is the U.S. backing down and losing face over the issue of Nord Stream 2 because we're pursuing a policy that can't be achieved right now. So you're inevitably going to have to back down on that. So, But people in the administration don't want to lose face so they're going to double down on that right up until the moment that they have to lose face and it's just an unnecessary conflict that is created by not having the information now how i end up with the information and they don't uh i like to believe it's because i look at maps and they don't but somebody is looking at maps somebody's got to be there that sees what i can see if i can just scroll through the news gather up the news over the course of a week and there's got to be someone there who sees what i see even if they disagree with my conclusions and they come to different conclusions there's got to be someone i just i just don't see how there isn't uh so the Biden administration bewilders me as usual, uh, but I'll continue doing my best to sort of see what they see and piece together why things are going the way that they're going, because that's, uh, well, that's my hobby at this point. So <laughs> that's the update to the Eastern question. So far, um, uh, for the first time, actually, we're not talking about armed conflict. So that's it. A meaningful, you know, development that things haven't escalated since last week. We'll see if that's the new trend that continues. Uh, a lack of escalation or maybe even a de-escalation. We'll have to see. We'll really have to see. That's the hope. And we'll see how it goes. Now, let's get to France. So, let's get into this. The U.S. State Department announces an offer to sell U.S. frigates to Greece. This upsets France, who had already secured their own frigate deal with the Greeks. And the U.S. offer has so far been rejected, but in light of this and the similar, very similar situation that happened with the competing submarine deals between France and the U.S. and U.K. over Australia, uh, where the U.S. and U.K. succeeded in displacing the French with nuclear submarines as opposed to the French standard, you know, diesel submarines. Um, in light of that, I am more steadfast in my belief that France will go its own way. It is my firm belief in instances like these where the two are competing in the same places and competing for different deals with the same countries and one side winning hurts the other even though we're technically allies now i view that instances like these will accelerate the process of france going its own way now again the prerequisite is that france has to come to the conclusion that european integration greater integration with europe isn't going to work they have to come to that conclusion first before they go all in on going for themselves and that's going to take some time but once that happens i feel that we're going to see major change big big changes from what we see now where france generally goes along with the u.s on many foreign policy issues and generally stays with the u.s and approaches those issues from the american perspective but, as the French are continuously snuffed by their allies more than their perceived enemies on issues that matter to France, a course correction is bound to take place. Eventually, 
French diplomats and foreign policy leaders will look at a map of where France is on the globe, and when that happens, a number of things are likely to follow. First is going to be a real and dedicated rapprochement with Russia. That's probably going to be at the top of the list. This will be followed by probably a normalization of relations with Russia. That's going to set off bombshells for everyone who is taking up the anti-Russia stance. So that's basically the rest of Europe. The rest of Western Europe, I should say. Uh, some countries in the East are more, more in line with a, a neutral to pro-Russia stance. I know Poland isn't. Um, but Hungary? Serbia? Definitely. I know. Greece is taking up the anti-Russia stance as well, but I see similar change in perspective out of them at some point in the future as well. But specifically focusing on France, there will be a reproachment between them and Russia. Macron has already tried, and I don't see French leaders coming after him not trying as well. And at some point, one of them is going to find the right set of policy positions and deal-making skills to get the job done. And you'll have the rapprochement with Russia. That is going to set off, that's going to massively change the geostrategic calculus in Europe. Um, because France is on the other end of the continent from Russia. So for the two to be friends, everyone else is, who's caught in the middle has to look in two directions. It's the the Imperial Germany problem, although on a wider scale, because Russia is, their borders are farther away from the center of Europe than they used to be, but Russia is still big, France is still where it is, everyone in the middle will then have to look in two directions, and everyone who's opposed to Russia will have to think about the prospect of finding themselves in opposition to France at the same time, and Germany knows that problem all too well. Britain had has had experience with that problem during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, during the brief peace that there was between Napoleon and Russia. But it's generally not something you want, especially if you live on the continent of Europe instead of, you know, being an island off the coast of France. But just that act alone is going to send shockwaves everywhere, even through the United States, because we have troops in Central Europe. So, France and Russia are getting together. Now we're encircled. Our troops are, or at least that's how we have to, that's how we're gonna view it. That's huge. And that's just the first thing. And it's not hard to see, Russia and France are on opposite ends of Europe. And while their interests don't necessarily overlap with one another, their interests don't conflict with each other either. You're not going to find Russian troops in Africa's Sahel region, where France is expanding their sphere of influence in Africa, the same as you won't find French troops in Central Asia, where Russia is trying to expand their influence. The two have pretty natural boundaries between each other, um, just due to where they are and the needs of their own geographies. Russia wants their borderlands. France wants to expand, but they're not going to expand in Europe. They're going to expand in other continents, namely Africa and Asia, if they can get away with it. So, uh, well, the Middle East, too. They were trying in Lebanon, and we'll see if they can pull out a victory in the influence war there. An influence war that Iran is winning handedly. And uh, Israel is helping them win with the negative PR that they're generating there. It's an influence battle in Lebanon, but the only influence Israel is getting is negative influence, and that, that just helps Iran. So, France is trying to expand, but in every direction that isn't in the places where Russia wants to expand, that this isn't deliberate, they're not deliberately avoiding each other, but because they are avoiding each other, there's, there's room for the two to come together in a non-conflicting manner. Their interests don't overlap, but they don't conflict. So that's pretty good for a rapprochement and even, even a potential alliance. And it, it's happened before, but we'll see if it happens again. I don't know if it will, 
it would probably be more akin to the relationship between Russia and France before the creation of Germany, where there was they were sort of working together for the balance of power in Europe, but not necessarily allies. I see something like that in their future. This, and there's also the issue of energy. France gets most of their energy from nuclear power. So to them, Russian pipelines are a, a secondary issue, as they are not the primary customers of Russian natural gas. And they're not exporting nuclear power to Russia. Russia has their own nuclear power, and they have plenty of oil anyway, so... It's not Russianese energy, they're exporting energy, and France produces its own energy. The two, again, don't overlap, but they don't conflict. The second thing that I believe will happen when the two, when France reconfigures its strategic position, when they reconsider where they are in the world and start making changes accordingly, uh, the second thing that'll happen will be a similar but perhaps less comprehensive rapprochement with China due to similar geostrategic reasons. China and France are diamet they're on diametrically opposed positions, not in Europe, but opposed positions on the whole of the Eurasian landmass. They're, they're about as far away as you can get from one another on this landmass. And so naturally their interests are far away from each other. China's interests are generally in Asia uh, and maybe the Middle East. France's interests are usually locked down in Europe and the Mediterranean. The overlap does come in Africa, but that's where the conflict comes as well. China and France are both expanding their influence in Africa through different means so far, but... I imagine that as the scramble continues, the scramble for Africa, and countries start laying more solid claims to their spheres of influence there, we might see sort of a, the differences start to even out into something more similar to one another, and where the French are building infrastructure in Africa as well as the Chinese are building infrastructure, and the two will come into conflict every time there's a new region that needs an infrastructure project and they have to fight with each other over who's going to get the deal. Now, there will be African countries that make out like bandits from the scramble if they're smart and if they're unified. Other countries are going to take the short-term gains and then get colonized. And so we'll keep an eye out for that as well. There are potential winners in this new scramble. We'll just have to see if they can take the opportunity presented to them and make something of themselves. Because uh, the, this competition isn't just going to be between France and China. I see Turkey potentially getting in. I see Spain and Portugal already with a foot in the door. Uh, we could see Britain show up uh, for South Africa. Or maybe Sierra Leone. Lots of other countries can get involved and probably will at some point in the future. But as far as uh, things go, France and China are the leading powers, uh, leading foreign powers in Africa. So there's that, and with Turkey in a, a third position. There will be conflict between them, and this rivalry between theirs is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to have a major impact on the lives of hundreds of millions, because Africa has a population of over a billion people. So... With, with the French being concentrated in the West and the Chinese being concentrated in the East, um, almost perfectly opposed to one another, that's a vast swath of China that's going, not China, a vast swath of Africa that's going to be impacted by their rivalry right now and any future rivalries between future foreign powers in the future, with again France and China being the leading powers as of right now. And they have a really strong uh, head start. So their conflict, their rivalry is going to shape the lives of millions. Some in objectively good ways, others in pretty bad ways. Let's be honest, the scramble for Africa was a good thing in terms of infrastructure, but a bad thing in terms of sovereignty, and a bad thing in terms of oppression. People were harshly oppressed and repressed, and rebellions were put down. 
people were killed during the last scramble for Africa. And as is the case, when countries expand their influence, there will be fighting. And if the fighting is in Africa, between countries that are too far away from each other to touch each other, well, guess who's gonna guess who's gonna be eating the bullet? Unless, <laughs> well, I would say biting the bullet, but uh, I guess eating the bullet will suffice as well. Guess who's gonna be eating the bullet? It's gonna be the people living in Africa. So this conflict is gonna have far-reaching implications for the people living there, and. It's one of the things I see in France's future as well as China's, which is one of the reasons I'm not, one I'm not on board the fear mongering that China's gonna just magically conquer the whole world, because in the multipolar system, countries their advance and their expansion are checked by the expansion and the advance of other countries, like. Portugal was going running rampant across the coastlines of Africa and in the Indian Ocean, and they were just running people's fades uh, with their better ships and their better weapons. And then the Ottomans showed up and gave them some real competition, and they got bogged down in proxy wars with the Ottomans. Portugal's expanse uh, into East Asia, well, into Asia, South Asia. And the Ottoman expanse throughout the Middle East and into Northwest Africa, well, not Northeast Africa, my mistake, uh, their expansions checked and balanced each other, and they fought with each other. Rather than continuing to expand, they slowed each other's expanse down. Turkey's expanse northwards into Europe was checked by the Poles and the Austrians. Their expanse into Central Asia was checked by Russia. China's expansion, uh, checked by in the Mughals in Vietnam, and even Korea at some points, Japan, their expansion checked, Russia's expansion checked, countries in the multipolar world, just through their own self-interest, check and balance each other. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. No one is able to conquer the world. The Spanish had the in. Entirety of the Americas, minus Brazil, and yet look at them now. They didn't rule the world. The British had a quarter of the world under their control. Look at them now. They've been. Germany used to be a, a collection of independent countries. They came together and ruined the French hegemony over Europe. Uh, they were the dominant military force on the continent until Germany comes along and put them in. A subordinate place, uh, well, an inferior place, not subordinate. Uh, the French never forgave them. Uh, Russia had way more population than everyone else in Europe, but yet they get beat in a war on their own soil in the Crimean War. They get decimated in the First World War. You would think that they would be able to conquer the world, but they couldn't. Countries check and balance each other. I'm not afraid. Uh, China ruling the world, they're just not going to be able to achieve it. No country has, no country will. There will be competition, though. And one of the competitions is going to be between them and France. And it's going to impact the lives of many, many millions of people. But now, we can get to one of the interesting things that I've compiled together for this episode. And that is the Koreas. And we'll just get into the story that led me to talk about this. So Australia has secured a deal to receive South Korean K-9 self-propelled artillery as a part of its security partnership with South Korea that they've negotiated. The two countries also agreed to increase minerals and energy trade, specifically clean energy. Uh, This was noted in the story. Uh, But this story got me thinking about, one, the Cold War, um, two, Australia's role, and three, the Koreas. Um, we, we talked about Australia, and we, as a matter of fact, we brought them up earlier this episode for the AUKUS deal, uh, where the US and UK supplanted France, and that made France upset. We talk about Australia securing weapons 
and we talk about Australia as a member of the anti-China coalition between India, Japan, Australia, just then that's the natural coalition, not even counting the quad, where you add the U.S. to the mix. But with Australia arming itself, they're becoming an increasingly important piece of the calculus here. Uh, and notice that they're exchanging, the trade includes minerals. China and Australia are in a trade war. Australian minerals are no longer going to China. Now, Australia is finding new trade partners, and they're disconnecting. That's going to create an alternative system of Australian trade, which will enable Australia to take up more hardline positions against China in the long run. So, this natural, this, uh, natural opposition, the capability of Australia to be opposed to China due to distance and the fact that, that they're an island, a really, really big island, enables them to basically play the role that Britain did during many of Europe's wars, where they're off, they're not on the continent. They're a naval power, and they exercise their strength accordingly. That's what Australia is going to be. And I see them having a pretty big role in the future, especially when conjoined with the naval and air power of Japan. And the land power of India. Um, so, there is a potential for conflict there in in the long run. I mean, we're not uh, the, in the short term. I don't see this triad, this triple alliance, stopping an invasion of Taiwan. But from that point onwards, as Asia moves forward into the future, and sort of the battle lines and get drawn from competitions being waged in Indochina and in Southern Asia and people start winning those competitions and securing countries to their side, there is going to be the potential for a larger conflict and it'll be horrendous should it happen. But for the time being, it's just very interesting to look at and watch it develop. That's Australia. India in Japan. But notice that whenever we talk about East Asia, uh, the prospect of war over Taiwan, the prospect of war over South China Sea, or the new Cold War and the blocks being formed within that Cold War, I usually don't mention North or South Korea. And I don't do that because they aren't important, but rather be because both of them seem to be at a, a crossroads. And from what I can tell, they haven't yet decided which way they're going to go. South Korea, for example, doesn't seem to be a solid member of the anti-China coalition, the major powers of which, in Asia anyway, being Japan, India, and Australia. With the US there as well, but those are, that's the quad. Then you have the regional triple alliance between India, Japan, and Australia, Notice, South Korea is not included. They're not included in these alliances to contain China. And South Korea is, that's a, that's a pretty big country to not have in these sorts of alliances. They have a large economy. They have a large and very functional military, which is rare among many U.S. allies. They have a capable navy. And they're close, very close, in fact, to China. They're very close to Beijing's capital. Not Beijing, to China's capital in Beijing. But this exclusion is a very visible example of what I mean when I say that South Korea hasn't quite decided which way they're going to go. Because it seems to me like they're trying to keep their options open. And not joining these sorts of alliances is a very good indicator, a visible indicator of that. The So visible that I can point to it. Um, they're keeping their options open, specifically the option of being friendly towards China rather than hostile. And given the geography of where South Korea is, 
it does make perfect sense for them to have a positive relationship with China. Um, much to the, the anger and detriment of many people in, say, the United States or Australia. But that's just the reality of where they are. They live in a tough neighborhood. And they have to choose between North Korea, Japan, or China. The U.S., as powerful as the U.S. is, look at where South Korea is. They're boxed in on three sides. Uh, the Japanese to their east, the Chinese to their west, and North Korea to their north. And once the war for Taiwan happens, and I'm pretty sure China's going to win that one, the Chinese will have the south as well. So that's China to the, the west and the south. Japan, and I, I bring up Japan because South Korea doesn't like Japan. They really don't like Japan. They used to be occupied by Japan in the Second World War and before that as well. And they have a much more favorable view to China. But if you're taking up an anti-China position, well, now you're enemies with China. And they're already technically at war with North Korea because the war never ended. So they're in a really, really tough spot, and they have to pick their options wisely. And the best way to do that is to keep them open. So I really don't blame them for doing what they're doing, even if it makes a lot of people upset with them. This is the best course of action that they can take for the time being. Eventually, they're going to have to make a decision. But until you make that decision, keep your options open. So with that... I see the South Korean government understands what I talk about. They understand where South Korea is on the map. And that's that gives them a huge advantage over a lot of other people in other countries and other leaders. And they've decided not to pursue a similar anti-China stance to that of the U.S. or the Quad. They're really, really keeping the options open all the way up to and including friendship and alignment with China. The North, meanwhile, is already solidly pro-China. They are pro-China because they have a border with China, so everyone else is secondary. <laughs> so, they're pro-China, and I don't see them flipping to being pro-America anytime soon. I'm pretty sure they're just as hostile to the Japanese as the South Koreans are, and they're at war with South Korea, so China is the best option. Russia, they technically have a border with Russia, but let's be honest, even though Russia's there, Russia's far away, so China's the best option they have for a friend, and they're not going to sacrifice that. They know where they are on a map, and that's, that gives them an advantage as well. Uh, so, while we can depend on the North being pro-China... South Korea, therefore, makes the difference. Because depending on the South, the direction that South Korea goes in, we could see a Korean peninsula that, as a whole, is affiliated more with China than the U.S. The Koreans have many directions that they can go in. Uh, one direction is peace. And this is a distinct possibility. I talk about it every now and then. The Koreans are opening up some of the statistics and data on their country to the South. They sent a joint team to the Olympics a couple Olympics back before. And the two aren't shooting each other right now. They're, they have a, the BMZ. They're firing rockets over each other's heads and doing military drills to piss each other off. But they're not shooting at each other. And this has held for decades now. So... The trust, even if they don't trust each other fully, they trust each other not to shoot at each other, so long as boundaries are respected, and which those boundaries have been respected, for the most part. But the Korean Peninsula really could go for peace. Both have basically already agreed to have formal peace talks, but... North Korea demands the withdrawal of U.S. troops as a precondition to even sitting down for these talks with South Korea. The U.S., meanwhile, as our precondition, have demanded that the North Koreans denuclearize first before the talks commence. Uh, which I shall also state isn't going to happen 
I'm, I mean, why would they do that? Let's, why would North Korea do that? We know where North Korea is on the map. We know that they're currently at war with South Korea, you know, technically speaking. And that technically includes the United States as well. Why would they sacrifice their nukes? If their army is outdated by decades, why would they ever do that? Why would they? I, I can't give you a reason. Especially if the U.S. still has troops in South Korea. You don't even have to believe that the North Koreans would actually keep up their end of the deal and come to the table for peace talks if the U.S. left. You don't have to believe that. You really don't, but you can still see, even without believing that, that North Korea has an obvious disincentive towards doing what the U.S. is asking them to do. Just due to the outdated nature of their military and the fact that they're technically already at war with their neighbor to the south, South Korea. I digress, but peace is, anyway, still a very real prospect. It just has some obstacles to overcome, with regional geopolitics being one of them. But it is my personal belief that with time, they will overcome them, and it'll be a beautiful sight. Uh, overcoming these obstacles will then lead to a third and largely unseen path for them to go down. The first path being alignment with China, both of them, second path being peace with each other, and the third path, which opens up if they are at peace with each other, is the path of unification. Korean unification. It's a, a very interesting path, to say the least, and it opens the door to many, many possibilities. For instance, North Koreans could find job opportunities in the South taking advantage of southern industry, commerce, and finance, uh, and favorable trade relations and trade connections that the South has with the outside world. Trade connections that the North just doesn't have and doesn't have the infrastructure for. So you could see North Koreans taking huge advantage of that and really making something for themselves. The South would gain access to untapped North Korean markets and the natural resources up to and including North Korea's food production, which, if combined with modern farming techniques, could make the could make the Union self-sufficient in food and maybe even an ex exporter, because North Korea is very agrarian right now, with just enough industry to produce a nuke or two. North Korean nukes, speaking of which, would become just Korean nukes. And South Korean military tech would become just Korean military tech. This unification would allow for major demobilization across the peninsula, which would then allow for a greater focus on economic development. And the Union would be a pretty big player. I mean, you're talking 50-something million people in South Korea joining forces with 25 million in North Korea, and that's... That's over 75 million people that you're talking. That's a really big player to just pop up on the scene. So, it's it would open up lots of possibilities, courtesy of the demographics. Um, but, as many possibilities as it opens up, uh, in terms of peacetime development, the demobilization of forces, and the sudden lack of a flashpoint uh, that's been taken for granted for all this time. The DMZ is, you'd have, the DMZ would have basically become what the Berlin Wall is today, uh, a relic of the past. And while it would be a beautiful sight, um, unification opens up just as many questions as it does possibilities. Where will the capital be? Pyongyang or Seoul? Or will they just build a new one? What will the government type be? Will it be a federal republic? A democratic republic with actual democracy? Will it be a confederation? That's, I think, I think that would be the one that wins out. Uh, we'll see. That's just my guess. I have nothing to go off of with that one. I just think a confederation sounds nice. Or will it be a unitary state? Uh, how will the leaders of the two governments interact in the new combined government? 
that supersedes the North and South Korean governments. Um, how will the representatives of the unified government be determined? What level of representation does each side get? Will will both be completely equal in representation? Or because well, in that case, the North will have outsized power in spite of having half the population of the South. Or will representation be based on population? In which case, the South will have the power to run roughshod over the North. So essentially, unification would present them with the same conundrum that the Founding Fathers in America had, uh, which led to the bicameral legislature of the Senate, where everyone's equal, and the House, where it's population-based. Will they come to that conclusion as well, or will they find something different, like a, a parliamentary system with specific um, rep population-based representation, or what's the word I'm looking for? There's a word for the how parliaments have like specific delegates that are allocated towards specific populations and ethnics and ethnicities within a country, so that everyone is represent a representative parliamentary system. Um, there's a word I can't remember it. It's failing. My vocabulary is failing me. Um, but you get what I mean. Where there's a specific representation for different groups so that everyone is represented. Uh, will that be how it goes? Where does the Kim dynasty end up in all of this? And what role would it play in the new government? Would it play a role at all? Would it operate like the royalty in Britain does, where they're there, they're out of politics, but they have heavy cultural influence? Will that be how it goes? And who would the Kim dynasty appoint the North Korean representatives unilaterally. Would they have any real power at all? Would they, would they even still exist as a power structure? Or would the unification destroy them as a power structure? Who knows? It's a very interesting prospect, and while they might not unify, I definitely believe peace is in order at some point in the future. And I would like to see it, you know. It would be a very nice development. And it would really make things, you know, interesting as well. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. In the world, oh, excuse me, the world, as we can see, is changing. Some cases for the better, some cases for the worse. But it's changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm -hmm.